everyone. You're listening to The Future of Food is You, a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Abina Samwa, and each week I talk to emerging talents in the food world and they share what they're up to, as well as their dreams and predictions for what's ahead. As for me, I'm the founder of The Eden Place, a community that's all about gathering people intentionally around food. I love this new generation of chefs, bakers, and creatives making their way in the worlds of food, drink, media, and tech. Today's guest is food scientist Kelsey Tenney. She is the co-founder and vice president of research and development at Voyage Foods. Voyage Foods is on a mission to future-proof our pantry essentials by offering sustainable alternatives that are delicious and good for the planet. Kelsey and her team offer products like their peanut-free peanut butter, hazelnut-free hazelnut spreads, and cocoa-free chocolate, just to name a few. Kelsey and I chat about how her passion for food led her to science, how she brings products to life that align with Voyage Foods' mission, and how scientists can be better embraced by the food world. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting today's show. Kerrygold is delicious all-natural butter and cheese made with milk from Irish grass-fed cows raised on small, family-run Irish dairy farms. Kerrygold's farming families pass their craft and knowledge from generation to generation. This traditional approach is the reason for the rich taste of Kerrygold. You can enjoy delicious sliced or shredded Kerrygold cheddar cheese available in mild or savory flavors. The shredded cheddar is perfect for those who love making mac and cheese. And now that grilling season is here, the cheddar slices will take any burger or veggie burger up a notch. There's also Kerrygold's classic salted butter in the gold foil. It's perfect for slathering on corn on the cob, always a summer fave. And the unsalted butter in the silver foil is an absolute must if you're turning sweet summer strawberries into strawberry shortcake. Visit KerrygoldUSA.com to find the Kerrygold retailer nearest you and lots of great recipes. Let's check in with today's guest. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us on the Future of Food is You podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how did food show up in your life? I grew up in Minnesota, Rochester, Minnesota, which is in like the southeast corner. I had a very traditional sort of like middle America experience with food. Ate a lot of McDonald's, hamburger helper, tuna helper, things like that. Grew up loving Sandra Lee, who did the semi-homemade kind of thing, because that was definitely something that was very much a part of how we prepared dinner and things like that. So I grew up with an appreciation for the grocery store, I would say. Obviously, since you're from Minnesota, I have to talk about your state's cultural export, the Minnesota State Fair. Yeah, yeah. Was that also part of your childhood? Did you have any favorite food stalls growing up while you were there? Fun fact, not a lot of people know this, but I was a singer when I was younger, and so I used to compete at the state fair, so we'd go every year. I definitely love hush puppies, and also, I mean, that's like a classic, but then they also have these, like, giant buckets of tiny chocolate chip cookies that Yeah, sweet Martha's. Yeah, I would eat the entire thing. (laughs) Obviously, growing up, it seemed like you had more of a grocery store food upbringing, as you like to dub it. How did you start thinking about the ways that you wanted food to show up as a career for you? Yeah, so in sophomore year of of high school, when you're supposed to start thinking about what you're doing, I had no idea, knew I loved to bake, and thought about going to culinary school to become a pastry chef. 
that did not go over so well with my parents as people who definitely worked so that I could, you know, have like a better life than potentially. I mean, I still love pastry chefs, think they have a great life, but essentially, you know, have options not to work on weekends, less on your feet, you have holidays off kind of thing. And so I sort of brainstormed with my mom on on different career paths that I could take other than pastry school. And she is a big proponent of keeping women in science and math. And I was very proficient at science and math at the time. And so we found the career of food science and it seemed to be the best thing that I could ever imagine for a career. What were some of the experiences like when you started to see the work that food scientists were doing? Did you get to do any shadowing opportunities? Did you just Google food scientists on the internet? What did that look like? Started with Googling. I saw a video that Cargill had put out, and most people don't know what Cargill is, but they're one of the largest food companies in the world. And their headquarters is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we job shouted for a day. I got to speak with a bunch of food scientists, and it was just incredible. You know, you're seeing people making, you know, muffins with omega-3 oils, trying to figure out how to make a healthier baked product. Or they have engineers looking at how can we change the crystal structure of salt so that it hits stronger and faster on your tongue so you can reduce the amount of sodium in products. It was a really cool experience. And it sort of sold me immediately. I think I'm one of the only people who was passionate about what they wanted to do at the age of 15. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. And so you end up going to Purdue. What was it like studying food science in college? Yeah, food science is generally a curriculum built of core sciences with a bit of application as you progress in your education. So started with a lot of bio classes, chem classes, and some physics classes. And then those translate into microbiology, food microbiology, food processing, food chemistry, things like that as you go. And so the second half of my studies were absolutely amazing. It was it was cool to sort of like really apply what we were seeing and be able to do labs and, and things like that. So it was a really cool program. What did community or mentorship look like with your professors? I mean, obviously, you can do so many things with food science. It's interesting. A lot of the communication in food science departments, you know, you get a lot of funding from larger food companies. And so you go through your program expecting to work at, at some of those larger CPG companies. I actually had my professor in undergrad, who's my advisor, and then I also worked in her lab, was Dr. Lisa Maurer. Fun fact, I actually put her forward for a Cherry Bomb article. She's in, I think, issue three she was featured, which is really, really cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and nice. so she's like one of the strongest female scientist that I ever worked with. And she was very academic. I never really wanted to stay in academia, but it was sort of a good experience talking things through with her at that time as well, just understanding how to think about science, scientific thought, mentorship, things like that. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. How are you able to maintain a joy or nostalgia of baking and stuff like that while still getting to understand food at such an intricate level, probably at a level that very few people will get to understand? Yeah. So there's actually two parts to this. So in undergrad, I worked at a bakery in Lafayette, Indiana, and that was a really nice experience. Gets you off campus, gets you thinking more about, you know, if you're making eight batches of 400 pound cupcakes or something, like how is that going to change the recipe? It was a very cool hands-on experience. And then later on when I went to grad school, something that was really helpful was that I created a food blog focused on finding the scientific beauty in various recipes for at-home baking, and that really helped me stay out of 
you know, this is happening in a vacuum. Food science happens around us all the time. We interact with it every single day. So why not talk about it and get other people excited about it as well? You decide to work for a few years before going to grad school. What was one of your first jobs that you had when you got out of out of Purdue? Yeah, so I actually never worked full-time after undergrad before grad, but I interned at a couple places. And I mm. had interned at a couple of really large food companies. The first was Carry Ingredients, which is similar to Cargill. You've never heard of it, but they source millions and millions of ingredients to the largest food companies in the world. And then the second one was ConAgra Foods, and they are one of the most ubiquitous CPG companies. They have things like Chef Boyardee, Peter Pan peanut butter, Healthy Choice frozen meals, things like that. And I think I learned the most at ConAgra Foods in a way that helped me decide what I wanted to do with my life. I think as I experienced more and more at ConAgra Foods, I just found that I wasn't becoming the scientist I wanted to become. And I noticed that the people around me didn't care as much as I thought that they should. So, for example, I was always really good at taking tests and memorizing things and being really proficient at grades. And I found that the people around me kind of also did not the bare minimum, but less than maybe they could to make the absolute best product. They just wanted to check the boxes off. And I really wanted to do more and be better for myself. And so I went to grad school to really learn about critical thinking and have more independent thought in what I was doing and and what I really thought about scientific reactions, things like that. I feel like most people go to grad school and they don't know what they want to do, but it seems like you want to double down on what you want to do. Were there any memorable experience that helped you get a better understanding of your work and then also your work as it exists in food as a whole? I think in general, my research experience was really difficult at first, but then became something that I love. And now rose-colored glasses, I was like, it was amazing. But there was one, one talk that really stood out to me a lot. We had a food processing class or food engineering class. There was a professor who does a lot of patent work at the university, and he gave an example. It really stuck with me and is something that I still use today as a metaphor. So he essentially was like, you know, you don't have to think about your product or what you're working on in a vacuum. You can look outside of the product and find inspiration in parallel things. So, for example, chocolate is basically a suspension of solids in a medium. So it's like, stuff inside of other stuff, right? And how does concrete, for example, how is that similar? Is there some technology in concrete manufacturing that we can learn from to apply to chocolate manufacturing? I feel like a lot of people don't know this, but chocolate manufacturing equipment is basically the same as it was 100 years ago. And so it was really interesting perspective on things that I had never heard before because it was very much slow down think more about the system and the principles of what's going on, and then you're able to see parallels much more clearly in other realms, not even in the food industry, but in other technologies. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I'm Carrie Diamond, the founder of Cherry Bomb and the editor-in-chief of Cherry Bomb magazine. The Cherry Bomb online shop is temporarily closed because we're switching warehouses. If you're looking for the newest issue of Cherry Bomb, be sure to visit one of our amazing stockists. Cherry Bomb is carried by great bookstores, cafes, magazine shops, and culinary boutiques across the country. 
and abroad. Places like Stella's Fine Market in Beacon, New York, Matriarch in Newport, Rhode Island, and Good Egg in Toronto. Visit cherrybomb.com for a stockist near you. Team Cherry Bomb is headed to Philadelphia. We're doing a live Future of Food Is You event on Thursday, September 7th, and I'll be moderating a panel of local food folks. We'll be at the new High Street event space, and there'll be great food, drinks, and networking. For tickets or more information, check out cherrybomb.com. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting this event, and I hope to see you there. Let's get into your work at Voyage Foods, where you currently are as the Vice President of Research and Development. Can you tell us about the company and the work that you're doing there? Yeah. So Voyage Foods is a food tech company. We're about two and a half years old now, based in Oakland, California. We have our lab. We also have a manufacturing facility there and our offices. Voyage, you know, its mission is to reimagine food that's constrained in consumption, production, or cultivation. And often we're looking at factors like human health concerns. And then we also look at changing environmental conditions due to climate change. And how we do this is we utilize natural ingredients and transform them into food products that smell, taste, and feel exactly like the original. And thus we're decoupling them from some of those issues that you see in the original products. So we have our first four products, peanut-free peanut butter, cocoa-free chocolate, bean-free coffee, and our newest product, a hazelnut-free spread, which is also vegan and cocoa-free as well. And the easiest way I like to think about this, the metaphor that we use, is think about a chocolate bar. So chocolate is made from the seeds of a cacao fruit pod. If you taste a cacao fruit, either the pulp or the pod itself, it's very astringent, sour, has like tropical green notes, absolutely tastes nothing like a chocolate bar, which is very deep roasted flavor. The way that you get chocolate from that cocoa seed is multiple processing steps. And so we can sort of use that as an inspiration and a roadmap for what we are doing. So what we do is we seek out commodities, sort of like a starting point, similar precursors to the original ingredients in the products we're looking at recreating, and we guide them toward the new end product with these processes in mind. There are a few principles we use for this, which I think differentiates us from other food tech companies. First, it has to be accessible. We're in the business of making food products that everyone in America and hopefully the world will be able to touch one day. We use lower cost ingredients to do this and we pay attention to the next principle, which is being scalable. So we need to use widely available ingredients. We can't use some niche ingredient that is very difficult to access. And we have to use scalable food manufacturing processes so that we can build a manufacturing facility The third, it needs to be environmentally friendly. So we perform life cycle analyses on all of our products to really address something that food manufacturers really need to do their part in. And I think this is something we're really sensitive to because we are going after products that are so affected by climate change, like coffee, like chocolate, that are slated to reduce in their availability by, you know, 70% in the next few decades. We use upcycled ingredients where we can. So our cocoa-free chocolate uses grape seeds upcycled from wine manufacturing and juice manufacturing. And we also try to select crops that are more robust to climate change. And then lastly, it has to be delicious because no one's going to buy it if it doesn't taste good. That's so exciting. I think the term food tech is quite broad as well. And it's mostly being perceived by alternative meat companies or robot machinery. How do you personally define it? And how do you also define it in terms of the work that you're doing at Voyage Foods right now? I think something that's really interesting is food technology used to be a term 
that essentially defined the science that goes into preserving, processing, keeping quality control of food. And so now food tech, shortened from food technology, has sort of become a bit of a cringy term. I actually don't like using it very much because I think that we're really looking to go back to those original principles of food technology and just apply more scientific fundamental thought to what we're doing and looking more broadly into the world for inspirations on how we can do something that no one else has done before. I think food tech has become almost like a meme in your head of someone who was like a software engineer and wanted to start a food company. And I think that's Mm. not the best image for food technology. (laughs) So we're really trying to bring the concrete technology piece back to the food technology space. As I was taking a look at your website preparing for this, you talk about this concept of future-proofing our favorite foods. What do you think future-proofing means on an industry and also on a societal level? So we use the term future-proofing, just coined it one day internally, and the way that we look at it is this concept of archiving food. So when you think of the seed bank, for example, there's every seed that they could gather is sitting in negative 80-degree freezers in case we need to regrow all of our crops one day. We're sort of doing the same thing but with food in how we experience it. So mimicking taste, flavor, texture of food products so that should something happen or should something become more difficult to consume, when you think of something like peanut butter, we can preserve those food experiences forever. And we do this by, you know, mapping out these food products, how we can recreate them in an accessible, less expensive way than, you know, some of like the cell culturing work, for example, and have them around for as long as possible. And you talk about accessibility. How did you think about accessibility, not just in terms of kids who have peanut allergies or dairy allergies can enjoy these things, but also in terms of price and it being just as much as a a jar of hazelnut spread or as a jar of peanut butter? It is a really big core R&D goal for us to make sure that everything is affordable. And if not line item price with the store brand of these products, line item price with the branded product. So for example, when you're going to your grocery store, the store brand peanut butter, we like to be line price with that. And if not that, then the ubiquitous sort of like branded peanut butter you think of when you think of a peanut spread. And that was really important to us because we want to have the biggest impact possible. And the way to do that is to enable not only consumers to purchase it, but businesses to purchase it so that they can introduce peanut flavored products in their facilities and give people the experience of a peanut flavored ice cream, for example, without having to spend $400 on like a pint of ice cream or have it be something that could cause anaphylaxis. Can you technically call it peanut butter if it's not peanut butter? Isn't there like some consumer protection Mm -hmm. marketing law you have to follow? I'm not... I'm not super plugged into these things, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the standard of identity of peanut butter and chocolate, we would not meet that because we don't use peanuts or chocolate, for example. And we also don't want to use those terms because we don't want to look like we're tricking the consumer. We really want people to be educated and aware of what they're purchasing and purchasing it for a reason. And so the standard of identity for our peanut spread, for example, is roasted seed spread, 
we've done a bunch of consumer work, and the thing that people gravitate to most is peanut-free spread. So you're giving them the idea of peanut, um, and we just have a photo of our actual product on the front, which looks like peanut butter, but really communicating that it's peanut-free alongside a badge that says top nine allergen-free because our manufacturing facility in Oakland has no core allergens inside. Okay, that's good to know. One of the biggest things is your go-to-market strategy and educating customers on incorporating Voyage products into their lives. As part of R&D, I'm sure you're doing some sort of consumer testing, blind tasting. What was that process like, and what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned? Yes. Our go-to-market strategy at Voyage is to really become a friend to the consumer so that we add value on a business-to-business side. So if you think about the Intel Inside model, for example, we really want to be a branded ingredient that people know and trust, and that means building somewhat of a consumer brand in the grocery store. So our spreads, for example, are launching in Walmart in the fall, which we're very excited about to have a broader impact, show that real value and accessibility to our core potential consumers. And that means that when we're doing our sensory work in R&D and our consumer testing, we're really trying to test against the top branded products as well as Mm. the unbranded store brand products so that that's really the window people have when they're walking through the aisle. We could, you know, stack the deck and test against some of the alternatives out there because we know that they're not super tasty. But for (laughs) us, in order to make sure that we're on track, we want to be at least parity in liking and, and similarity scores to these products. What are the demographics of people that you're testing? Are you testing kids, people who have allergies, people who want something healthier? Testing with kids is kind of challenging. It's definitely difficult to get large numbers of kids to eat your product in an inexpensive way. So what we're doing is we're looking at a couple of different markets. You know, we use universities for their sensory testing, and essentially we try to get a huge group of people, 100 to 120 people, that are basically an age range of like 22 to 55, for example. So we're trying to get more ages represented and then also equal split between men and women. And that sort of represents generally our core consumer in retail. You know, those people are not necessarily early adopters of what you would classically think of as food tech consumers, but they are people who are interested in the products that we're testing them in. So they have to like peanut butter, for example, or hazelnut spread, chocolate hazelnut spread, and people that are interested in potentially trying new things if the cost point was there. And then we also test around the Bay Area, for example, as well. So those are the very early adopter food tech consumers. So with that, we sort of hit two birds with one stone, making sure that we're not driving ourselves into that stereotypical food tech consumer, but also striving for the broader population. We have a lot of aspiring founders and and creatives who listen to the podcast. and, And something that I think is often not talked about, but is important, is the financing of these things. So you have raised over $41 million in funding. Congratulations. What was that process like of raising venture, especially, you know, before products were out there in the world? And what are some lessons that you take from that as you think about the financing of Voyage Foods Onward? 
there's a couple things here. One, my best friend and CEO, Adam Maxwell, handles a lot of the financing, but I've been blessed to sort of be brought along on a lot of those meetings. We had a bunch of great connections from one of the previous companies we were at, Endless West. It's interesting because those investors knew us and almost every investor that invested in Endless West wanted in on the next company. So that was really a nice head start. And then, you know, as we went into the Series A, we were really looking at expanding that funding source. And we spoke with a bunch of different firms. And I think one thing that really stood out is that in the food tech space, especially people really want to make investments. But there's not a lot of really great ideas ideas in the food tech space. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of copycat companies, a lot of vegan meat and dairy companies, and while that is definitely something that we should be tackling, there wasn't a ton of traction in those spaces, which we're sort of seeing now, you know, with a lot of those companies having troubles raising more funds. And we had a business that had a trajectory to make money right away, profitable from the beginning because of the core values of Voyage Foods. And we also had a great prototype that we could show people that plus the tenacity to really just do everything ourselves. And we built our first manufacturing facility before we had our Series A, which was very impressive to investors. And so that led to a pretty monster Series A, and we were really excited. You know, as we look to raise Series B, I think we really want to look for partners that want to help us grow further. You know, we mentioned accessibility, and that is really important to us, and we want to touch as many consumer products in as many people's homes as possible to have the most impact. And so that requires a lot of growth. And so that's definitely something for us on the horizon as we look to the next phase of Voyage Foods. Manifesting for a minute here, is there someone you want to try your product? I think the team at Milk Bar has tasted our products, but I've always really loved Christina Tosi. I think that she has a really great ability to grow her vision and her company and just inject joy into everything. And so I would love for Christina Tosi to be a fan of Voyage Foods. Awesome. You mentioned you had a co-founder and it seems like not only are you guys co-founders, you're you're really good friends as well. Mm-hmm. What has the process been like in developing a relationship, especially working on such a nascent product that doesn't really exist? Mm-hmm. How do you two as co-founders bring your own strengths together And how do you think about the relationship in light of the work that you're doing? Yeah. So Adam and I, who is the CEO and co-founder with me, he is a very energetic person. He definitely brings that strength to the table. That's a really lovely trait in a leader often because he's very good at rallying people around him. And, you know, we've been best friends now for six years, seven years, and we met at a food consultancy in Boston. The strength to our relationship is we have total trust in each other. I think partly that's because we've been friends for so long, so we can sort of read each other and understand when something's bothering them or when someone just needs a minute. And I think partly sometimes that makes it more complicated because you're bringing different, I don't want to say baggage, but it is kind of emotional baggage to the situation. So he and I are very open with each other about, you know, I'm going to give you some feedback. You know, I want to help you grow. And we switch on business versus friend very easily. And I think that's been something that we've really cultivated over the last few years together with this company. And we've really grown with each other as we've sort of like expanded our ability to take on new information to manage more people. You know, we started with a couple people 
two and a half years ago, and now we have around 45 people. So we've definitely, cool. yeah, we've definitely grown together. And I think I bring a lot of organization and just like brute force to R&D along with some creativity. And, and he brings a lot of energy, sort of like crazy scientist ideas because he's also a scientist in his background and keeps me thinking about our core business objectives as well, which has been really nice balance for us as we as we grow the company. How do you think about sustainability from a company perspective and how do you think that trickles down into the products that you're making? I sort of have two different thoughts when you ask me that question. So one is the sustainability of our people. You know, I've been at companies that are very stressful and sort of burn people out. And you end up learning a lot, but after a year, you're like, I've paid my dues and I'm leaving. The people as a resource at Voyage Foods are so important to what we're doing. And so for me, it's very crucial to check in with scientists and with other team members to ensure that they're getting the reset they need, especially with something as creative as research and development as they go along. And we also really foster great teamwork at Voyage Foods. So I have a vision statement for the lab, and there's a whole paragraph in it about paying attention to each other and really caring about each other. And so we do a lot of activities together, a lot of offsites together. We went to Admiral Maltings a while ago, which is based in Alameda, California. They do malting themselves, malted barley the old school way. And so we do, yeah, it's very cool. We do activities like that, and it's good to show people new visions of food than what they're exposed to on a daily basis. Then I also like to think about sustainability in terms of what we're doing. And so reminding everyone about the responsibility we have as we're making new products. So looking at the sustainability of the ingredients they're sourcing, the processing they're using. If they don't have to use something that increases the energy costs or footprint by 3x, then we probably shouldn't do it and we should find another way to do it. I love that. Is there one piece of advice you'd give to consumers who want to consistently be sustainable in terms of how they shop or how they eat? Sustainability is really hard to shop for. Even as we're doing life cycle analyses, there's not a lot of great data out there, even for companies that are really trying to do their best. The best piece of advice I have is when you're looking at sustainability numbers on a package to seek out something called an isoconformant report, which basically means that it's been vetted by third-party reviewers and thus has passed a standpoint of quality in terms of, you know, it's not just some random number that someone found on Google and put it on a package. And actually, legally, if you have it on a package, you're supposed to have an isoconformant report anyway to protect consumers from fraud. But we all know that sometimes that's not the case. (laughs) I want to talk to you a little bit about the impact on being a scientist, being a female scientist, and how you think about that in the work that you're doing. It sounds like, you know, you had a really supportive family that encouraged you to be a scientist. And how do you think about the community of support right now as it exists for female scientists? And is there more work that can be done for scientists who are identify as women, who identify as people of color, who identify as queer? Yes. I think food science as a field is actually much further along than other scientific backgrounds. You know, my food science class had more women than men in it. But when you look at the echelon of leadership in companies in scientists, and when you look at grad school programs, and when you look at other scientific fields like chemistry, 
like biochemistry, they're much less women than men when you actually dig in past the sort of like first level layer. And so I think we're definitely doing better, but I think there is still some unconscious bias there. Something that my my mom did at IBM was essentially ensure that technical talent has a pathway within IBM. And there's like a certain age at which women scientists just drop off. And I think we still see that across every company today. And so making sure that there is a pathway for technical leaders that are women or people of color to ensure that they feel like they belong and that they do have a pathway. That's been something that's really important. So maybe not just paying attention to someone who might be the best talker in the group, but someone who has a lot of talent and should be pushed forward. I mean, I know you already shouted out your professor and advisor, but is there another female scientist, particularly in food, that people should know about if they want to explore that world a little bit more? Yeah, I think Pia Sorensen. She's a professor at Harvard. I feel like some people have seen these videos now online, but she was one of the founders of the Science Meets Food course at Harvard that invites, yeah, yeah, a lot of like celebrity chefs to come Mm -hmm. give talks. And she basically connects physics with the core processes behind food preparation. I actually interviewed her for a piece in Edible Boston when I lived in Boston, and she's just incredible and very down-to-earth but scientific thinker. And I think she's someone that people should look to as a mentor. Yeah. I read that piece. You, you've written some great some great stuff for them, too. Oh, thank I you. I learned so much about that space. I'm curious to hear how you think food scientists find themselves in the CPG space. I feel like most CPG founders are people who just have some passion for food, but not necessarily the scientific background. How do you think food scientists find themselves, you know, in terms of co-packing labs, developing these products? I think food scientists feel a little villainized, honestly, Mm. in the food space. I think when you look at the core work that food scientists do, it's in those middle aisles of the grocery store. And so when you look at, for example, like a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, Many, many food scientists have touched that. And yes, you shouldn't be eating that every day, but for a couple bucks, it's a pretty nutritious meal that people can afford. And so I think food scientists feel a little bit on the outs. I think there is with this sort of like resurgence of food manufacturing, especially at co-packers, there is more and more integration of food scientists in this new world of new consumer packaged goods and new brands that are coming out. But I still think... Often it's not a food scientist, it's a branding or design person or a business entrepreneur who's the face of those things. And I think people sort of like like working with food scientists and they find it really interesting and amazing, but I don't think people are proud necessarily outside of the scientific field to be a food scientist. That's tough to hear considering food wouldn't exist if we didn't have food scientists. Do you think there are things that can be done to allow for a more positive reaction or a positive way to to understand food scientists that are doing good work, obviously. There's Mm -hmm. also a flip side of of a lot of food scientists that that aren't necessarily made for the benefit of people, but for the ones that are doing the best that they can. What's a way for consumers to feel more comfortable and more at ease and feel this positive reaction towards scientists? Yeah, I think science and technology and food is necessary, but of course, with that comes responsibility. So, you know, as a food scientist, you should really be doing your best to understand how people are utilizing your product, how many ingredients are going into it, and could you simplify it? 
could you make it more nutritious? Will people still buy it? Will it be the same price? Things like that. But I think on the consumer side, I guess I would just say because science is so necessary in food, to not be afraid of it. You know, I mentioned ingredients, and I think there should not be 800 ingredients on a label, but I don't think consumers should look at something and be like, oh, it has more than five ingredients. I don't want to buy it. Because when you look at some of the the best food you can make at home, there's usually way more than five ingredients in that product. And so I think being open to science and trusting of some of those things is difficult because of some of the work that food scientists have done over the over the last hundred years. But I think it would really help bridge that gap and make it more of a two-sided street in terms of what consumers want and what scientists do. It's cool that you're a food scientist, but you're also someone that's very passionate about food. I I looked at your food blog, Appeasing a Food Geek, which is awesome. (laughs) You have such Mm -hmm. great recipes on there. Thanks. What does food look like for you outside of the office, outside of the R&D lab right now? I recently have been making a conscious effort to cook more because I know that sounds silly, but I often during the week, if you're staying late, working on things, eating out, things like that. And so I've been really trying to get in the kitchen more. I also love coming back to baking as a way to, it's like a form of escapism, right? But it also brings me back to my roots a little bit. So I love baking anything that Sarah Kiefer does. She's the um, vanilla bean blog. I've done a lot of recipe testing for her cookbooks over the years. And I just think she has some of the best baking recipes you could ever ask for. And then I love on the savory side, Eden Grinchpan has one of the funniest Instagrams, but is... Oh, she's the best. She just has some amazing Mediterranean food that I've been making recently. So that's sort of what my kitchen looks like right now. Is there a restaurant in the Bay Area that you like, that you're really enjoying these days? Yellow Moto Pizzeria. It's by Dolores Park. If you live in San Francisco, it's definitely a place I try to go to once a quarter or so. I love it there. Nice. Kelsey, before we go, we're going to do our future Flash 5. How are you feeling? Good. (laughs) Okay, cool. The future of coffee. New origins. The future of sustainable foods. Ubiquitous. The future for food scientists. Essential. The future for California produce. Bountiful. And the future of food technology. Accessibility. Amazing. Kelsey, if we want to keep supporting you, where are the best places to find you? I am on Instagram at Kelsey underscore Tenny. You can keep up with us on voyagefoods.com, which, you know, we'll be announcing some of our launches to make sure you can get product near you. As you mentioned, I do have a food blog, and that's appeasingafoodgeek.com. Kelsey, it was so great chatting with you and can't wait to keep eating peanut-free spreads and, and seeing more of your work out there. Thank you. Before we go, our guest is going to leave a voicemail at the Future of Food mailbox, just talking to themselves 10 years from now. You have reached the Future of Food as You mailbox. Please leave your message after the beep. Hi, Kels. It's been a while, and I hope in the last 10 years that you have continued to find personal and professional fulfillment. I can only imagine you are still doing the work that makes your soul sing. I have no doubt that you have become a fantastic role model for women everywhere, especially those in the math and science fields. And gone are the days when people talk about how unusual it is to see women in higher levels of science leadership. I hope that you have steered scientists to think deeper, wider, and more purposefully, as is your own motto. I have an idea of the new innovations you and your team are thinking up, but I'm sure you'll surprise me with all sorts of ambitious products. I can't wait to hear all about your personal and professional trials, triumphs, and failures that have guided you here. 
Most importantly, are you still dipping your pizza in ranch, or has San Francisco replaced that Midwestern trait? I'm sitting here at the precipice of launching our second product and going live at Walmart with our spreads. This will drive us closer to realizing the vision that Voyage is different from other food tech companies with technologies that are accessible to all. You've always wanted to change people's minds that science and food isn't scary, but necessary. Ten years from now, Voyage Foods is surely the ubiquitous firm that people think of when they think of food tech. I can only assume that you've enabled Voyage to impact millions of people in a meaningful way. That's what matters most, and I'm sure you're crushing it. Save all of the stories for me. That's it for today's show. Do you know someone who you think is the future of food? Tell us about them. Nominate them at the link in our show notes or leave us a rating and a review and tell me about them in the review. I can't wait to read more about them. Thanks to Kerrygold for sponsoring our show. The Future of Food as You is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Thanks to the team at CityBox Studios, executive producers Carrie Diamond and Katherine Baker, and associate producer Jenna Sadu. Catch you on the Future Flip.